Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is going to be the last installment of our Old Testament series until the fall. So we're going to take a breather uh, starting uh, next week, and we're going to go into our sunburnt series over the summer, which I'm always looking forward to. But today is going to be our last uh, study of an Old Testament person. And you all know that King David had many wives, uh, but according to the Bible, only about eight of them were named, and of the eight, only five are mentioned only once. But the other three uh, were fit pretty predominantly into the story of King David. Now, wife number two is Abigail, and she was a woman of good judgment. And today, we're going to learn about her from Dr. Rebecca Ree, who is a Hebrew scholar and read the text in preparation uh, for today in Hebrew, which just always amazes me. Rebecca, welcome. Oh, I'm so glad to be back. Yeah. You know, when you sent me a picture of your, your Hebrew Bible, I thought, oh, you're kidding, right? I, I didn't even know which way to hold it. Do I hold it this way or that way? It was so confusing to me. Well, it was a photocopy because, of course, you can't just go drawing all over your, your uh, sacred Hebrew Bible. But yes, that's how I always do it. I always photocopy the text in English and Hebrew, and then I go to town with my highlighters and my pens, and we see what comes up. Yeah. Now, I know when I asked you to do this, and you've been on the show many times talking about Old Testament people. And today, uh, as we talk about Abigail, I thought you have prepared three or four weeks in in preparation for this. And I thought this is going to be really a fascinating hour. I don't know if a lot of people know much about Abigail. Yeah, well, um, we're going to focus on the way she talks. And um, just as a little intro, um, remember who she's talking? Well, I don't want to steal my own thunder. So I'll just hmm. say, I'll start out by saying, uh, we're going to focus on the way that she speaks in, in her story, the way she's presented that way. Okay. So um, let me just begin by saying that um, the Bible gives a consistent witness to the power of the spoken word. I mean, if you look at it in Genesis, it opens upon God creating the world through a series of let there be statements, right? And in the New Testament, Jesus performs miracles by quote-unquote merely speaking and is himself called the word of God. So one of my favorite scriptures comes out of the book of Isaiah where God says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Such a powerful image and promise. Mm -hmm. I love just picturing that word going out from God's throne and coming back to him, having done what it was supposed to do. And we are made in God's image, and our words should be going out from our mouths to accomplish good things. But if you're half, you know, half awake and you follow politics, entertainment, education, social media, it seems like we spend most of our time using our words to hurt each other. Mm, That's true. We need models of good and powerful speech. And so that is why today I'm looking at a woman who manages to diffuse an incredibly violent situation with her speech and help a servant of God 
course correct at a pivotal time in his life. Um, and as you've said before, the woman's name is Abigail, as we say in English. And I'm going to just continue to say her name in English. So if anybody tunes in kind of halfway, they, they aren't like, who are they talking about? Because in Hebrew, her name is Abigail. Um, and then the course correcting servant is none other than David, who will soon be King David. So we're going to go by the English names here. And if at any point you need me to stop and explain a Hebrew name or something like that, please go ahead and I'll do that. Um, so I wanted to start by reading an abridged version of the encounter that um, Abigail and David have. And then I'm going to point out some of the rhetorical strategies that Abigail uses David to get him where he needs to go. And then we're going to see what we personally have to gain from those rhetorical strategies in our own lives. Um, so let me go ahead and start reading. So it's story time. Um, I love it. Then, King, then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said, Go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal, and Nabal answered, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we did not miss anything when we were in the, in the fields. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were with them. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, and he returned me evil for good. 
God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by mourning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she got down from the donkey and fell on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. But I, your servant, did not see the men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hands, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hands. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. When the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and who has kept his servant back from wrongdoing. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail, they said, David has sent us to take you as his wife. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Quite a story. (laughs) It's an unbelievable story, and I have the highest view for Scripture. You do the most beautiful job of reading it. I I was absolutely captivated, and I think I followed it really well through about verse 14. Now is when the uh, good doctor has to come in and start explaining all this. Okay, so we're going to summarize here. So the central problem in this narrative, right, is that Abigail's husband, Nabal, and in Hebrew it's Nabal, and it means foolishness or worthlessness, um, which when someone is foolish in the Hebrew Bible, it's not just like that they're 
simple or stupid. It means that there's a moral component to it, that you're being immoral in your stupidity. You're doing something morally wrong. So that's what his name implies. Um, so Nabal's has the central problem is that Nabal has egregiously offended David. And although he's very wealthy and should have had plenty to share at the time of sheep shearing, he sends David's men home with nothing but insults. And to give you a little bit of context, in the Bible, the shearing of sheep is not only a time of celebration, but it's a time of reckoning okay. when, account, when accounts get settled. Oh, that's so interesting. All right, Rebecca, I think we take our first break. When we come back, we will continue okay. with Dr. Rebecca Reed. We're talking about Abigail. If you have your Bibles open, you know that's in First Samuel chapter 25. Be very helpful if you get that out, because we're going to continue going through God's Word and learning about Abigail. We'll be right back. My guest is Dr. Rebecca Ree. You can go learn about her at RebeccaRee.net. That's R-H-E-E, RebeccaRee.net. She got her PhD in religion and literature from Boston University and is a Hebrew scholar. And we're talking about Abigail, and that is from 1 Samuel chapter 25. And Rebecca, maybe we can just go back briefly to the celebration of the shearing and what a big deal that was. Because that seems like to a lot of people just like a whole bunch of work. But um, there was actually, as you can tell from that long list of all the different kinds of foods that Abigail packed to give to David, that it was an incredible time of feasting, but it was also a time where you settled up your accounts for the year. Um, So it's it's both. Um, I think it's like recognizing that you have this material wealth and then um, determining where that material wealth needs to go in terms of how it gets shared. So that's a big sticking point because, of course, David expects that he and his men, who at this point, they're fugitives from Saul, so he does need to take care of his men. Mm -hmm. They have acted, it would have been so easy for them to just take what they wanted from Nabal, but they have acted honorably, and so they expected to be treated honorably. Um, And and so when when they come, and David, he, he doesn't demand the feast day food. He actually uses very deferential language. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. And as far as I know, I checked, the only time David ever refers to himself as someone else's son. Hmm. So he's really putting himself under Nabal when he makes this very deferential request. And instead of paying the debt, you know, Nabal basically gestures at David with the finger of one hand, if you catch my name. Sure. Um, He's saying, you know, who is who? And when you hear the words, you just cringe. You know, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? So David has, a, you know, a two-pronged response. The, ho- the first one is um, wholesale slaughter. You know, strap on your swords, four hundred men, right? Right. The second is he has this thought. You know, in vain I have guarded all this fellow has. You know, he has returned uh, evil for good. You know, um, I'm not even going to leave one male amongst that household. So David's infuriated, clearly. One offense stems from um, a just claim. You know, by rights, he should be repaid by Nabal for all of his services. 
But the other offense seems to stem from a bruised ego. Um, When you hear the phrase, if I so much as leave one male um, among him, the Hebrew literally says, if I spare so much as one among them who pees against the wall. And I said pees in a nice way. There's another way that's more coarse. Okay. Um, This phrase is used um, about seven times in the Hebrew Bible, and it's always used in a context of punishment or retribution. And um, it, it kind of denotes complete extinction, that what, whoever the target of that is, of that phrase is, there's no distinction be- between the people targeted. Everybody's going to die. Everybody who pees against the wall is going to die. So um, to my ears, David is speaking about Nabal's people, his whole household, and it must be large because the man's rich. As if they aren't even persons, he's talking about them as if they're a pack of animals to just slaughter. You know, Nabal has provoked him to the point of bringing out the very worst in him, both in his speech and the way he's poised to act. And this is what Abigail is up against when a servant warns her and she goes out to meet David. So I want to point out three ways she diffuses this ticking time bomb with her speech. So the first and most obvious way is that David approaches, I mean, Abigail approaches David with great humility. And she takes full responsibility for the offense David has suffered. The first words out of her mouth, and in the Hebrew Bible, the first words out of a character's mouth are often very emblematic of who they are, like inside their heart. Um, It's a good kind of uh, rule of thumb to remember. So the first words out of her mouth are, upon me, Lord, be the guilt. Upon me, my Lord, be the guilt. And then a few verses down, she says, please forgive the trespass of your servant. Mm. And it's very interesting to me that Abigail comes out of the gates with an agreement that David has been wronged and sinned against. Because if it were me, I would have run out of the house, you know, towards David screaming, please don't kill us. It's not our fault. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but she does the opposite. opposite. Yeah. She says, punishment is due, and I want it to fall upon me and me alone. And now, mind you, David is assume I mean, Abigail is assuming blame face down on the ground, speaking of herself in the third person always as David's servant. And she calls David my Lord 14 times during this discourse. You know, this surplus of honorific speech is a feast for the ears, and then it's followed by a feast for the belly mm. as David, as Abigail presents a lavish meal for David and his men. So clearly, Abigail is trying to assuage David's wrath by providing him with the very things that Nabal had withheld, respectful language and feast day food. And if you remember, there's that famous proverb that says, a soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I find, and that's Proverbs 15.1, if anybody wants to look that up. I find Abigail's use of this tactic really convicting because when I'm caught up in a conflict and particularly one that's not my fault, I think I tend to get defensive and accusatory. My first instinct is not to humble myself and look for ways that I might take responsibility for setting things right. 
So that's lesson number one we learned from Abigail, that humility goes a long way towards diffusing situations that pose real danger of injury. So the second um, rhetorical strategy that she uses is she looks for and identifies God's presence amidst the mess. Specifically, Abigail creates a rhetorical relationship between God and David that ties them very tightly together in terms of what God is doing for David and who David is for God, to God. So to pick up the first point, here's what God is doing for David, according to Abigail. He's restraining David from spilling innocent blood. And that's going to become an issue later in Chronicles because um, God will, will tell David, you have shed blood abundantly and have made great wars. You shall not build a house in my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. That's when the, the, the temple building has to go to Solomon because this becomes an issue for David. But at this point, she's saying, God's restraining you, David, from spilling innocent blood. And another point she makes is God is keeping David from saving by his own hand. And, you know, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And it also reminds me a little of judges when everyone is doing, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. Mm -hmm. That's a big no-no. God's restraining David from that. Another, Another thing she says, God is in the process of making David prince over Israel. You know, even though David is just a fugitive at this point, and he's establishing a sure house. That's what she calls it through David. And that's like looking into David's potential, not what, what she sees right in front of him, but like she's looking through to what, what God can do and will do through David. Mm-hmm. And finally, she's saying that God is preserving a clean slate for David. So David won't suffer a guilty conscience later when he rises to power. Now, to my mind, except for the prince, of, prince over Israel part, most of these measures of restraint are being performed by Abigail herself. Which, know, she's the one. Go ahead. Which just makes her uh, so spectacular in this story. And yes. I, I'm, I'm up against a, a break, Rebecca, so we are going to have sure. to uh, stop just for a minute. But this is uh, time flies when you are learning such rich details about such a powerful story. So when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Rebecca Ree talking about Abigail. We learn about her in First Samuel chapter 25. You can also learn about Rebecca at her website, which is Rebecca Ree, R-H-E-E dot net. Be right back. Let's get it started. 
Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. My guest is Dr. Rebecca Ree. We're talking, and not to show off my Hebrew chops, but we're talking about Abigail. But you probably think of her as Abigail, but, you know, that's who we're talking about today. We learn about her in First Samuel chapter 25. And I just think it'd be helpful, uh, Rebecca, if we just kind of touch real quickly again on the three points that were made. Abigail approaches David with great humility. I thought that was fantastic. And then the other two was God's presence amidst this, the mess. Yep, she's identifying God's presence amidst the mess, and I haven't got, I haven't told you the third one. That's the, that's like the cliffhanger. Okay, good. So, um, but I did want to point out that you know Abigail is saying, "Look, God's restraining you from doing all these bad things." When it's actually Abigail herself through her speech that's that's restraining um, David. And so I thought to myself, why does she do that? Like, why does she? Um, take no credit, but attribute her intervention to God. Um, and I think that she wants to kind of point David to his best self, um, who he is through God's eyes. And it's interesting because, you know, besides calling him the Prince of Israel, the founder of a shore house, um, she says, she, she's basically saying, David, you're God's chosen one. I mean, that's the, that's the word I want to say. You're God's cho- you've been chosen by God for a very special purpose. And you have so much to gain and so much to lose um, by being God's chosen one. And I have to wonder, you know, where is Abigail getting all of this input you know, that she, she really, like, it's dense speech, which she says about David, this really special relationship that she, David has with God, all the things God's doing for him and all the things that God is, David is to God. And, you know, Nabal certainly didn't know David beyond him being the son of Jesse, right? And Abigail does make a passing reference to David, um, to his enemies being slung out, like as if they were slung out from a slingshot. So I thought, well, does she know about the whole Goliath incident? You know, I don't know. Um, But it seems to me that the lower she puts herself, you know, emptying herself of importance, the higher she sets David and she fills him with with honor. And the point is, she's willing to look at David through what I call stained glass speech. She takes this bit, she takes that bit, and she holds all the little different parts of David up to the light, to the d- divine light, and see something that's good, that's becoming even better. And she chooses to regard David as someone whom God has his hands on, who is made in his image. And do we remember to do that with the people that we're in conflict with? Um, I think often that's the first thing to go. In fact, when she talks to David, she says God's name no less than seven times to David. Um, so again, it's just, I think that another good lesson to learn. She's finding God in the mess, in the mess, and she's also, you know, in the circumstances, but she's also willing to look at David himself and find where David is, where God is in him specifically. And so here's the third thing that I was telling you. Uh, Abigail's third strategy after humbling herself and bringing God into the picture is to keep a wide angle view of the situation. And now what do I mean by a wide angle view? So, First, let's look at David, who's so infuriated by Nabal's rudeness that his focus has become 
frighteningly narrow. You know, all he can see is how he's going to repay Nabal come what, what may. But Abigail insists on much wider parameters. Um, the narrator has her mirroring and converting some of David's speech so that she presents back to him a much more comprehensive picture of what's going on, a lot more accurate. So when David crudely talks about Nabal's men as though who pee against the wall, Abigail gently reminds him that they are people of innocent blood. And when the narrator says David, records David as saying, every man strap on his sword, David also strapped on his sword. Abigail encourages instead David to look down that violent road and see that using those swords, using his sword, is tantamount to saving with your own hand. Um, Surely, she seems to be saying, that does not reconcile with the man whose enemies God will cast away. You know, she's basically saying, go your own way or go the Goliath way. But, you know, it doesn't, you can't reconcile those two things. And finally, when David says to himself, in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has, Abigail says, when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So in other words, when God, the ultimate rewarder of righteousness, repays you, please turn around and do the opposite of Nabal with me. So I want to call attention to a detail that has exciting implications for our life with this third point, which is each time Abigail makes uh, makes, uh, what I call a widening or a corrective statement, she seems to be addressing speech that she never directly overhears from David. So those who pee against the wall, every man strap on his sword, and in vain have I guarded, are all spoken out of her hearing. And that suggests to me that God is using Abigail as his mouthpiece as she humbles herself and trains a spotlight on the personal and comprehensive work he is doing in David's life. And I don't know about you, but I would love for God to be able to speak through me to address critical things that arise outside of my hearing, you know, things that I'm not, I don't have direct knowledge of. And wouldn't you love God to know that God can use that? You're you're such a humble servant that God can use you like you in that very, very powerful way. So, you know, speaking of how do we apply Abigail's strategies to our lives in in times of conflict? And I thought about it a lot. And it's funny because I think a lot of these strategies happen in our prayer closet and that might have something to do with humility. Um, And there are things that we have, of course, be modeled by Jesus in the New Testament. But the first one, humbling ourselves, obviously, we're not going to throw ourselves on the ground and say, you're serving in my Lord all day, right? But what can we do? Um, And one question that came up to me when prayer was, you know, God, where can I take responsibility so that we can take a step towards peace and resolution? You know, what is the soft answer here? And, you know, that's Jesus quintessentially washing his disciples' feet. Um, Can't, you know, can't get more humble than that. But what is the soft answer here? Where can I take responsibility? And then number two, looking for God in the middle of the mess, you know, praying, God, where are you in this situation? I think we just get so emotionally boiled over, we forget to ask that question because it's like, seems like God isn't even in the situation. 
you know, how can I collaborate with you rather than go my own way? And, you know, we're reminded in John 5, 19, that Jesus said the son can only do what he sees his father doing. Um, You know, Jesus had to look for God in the middle of the mess all the time. Um, And we may need the help of a trusted friend to see God in the situation. We definitely need scripture, but we may need the help of a trusted friend to kind of talk it through and process it to help us see where God is in a situation of conflict. And then three, maintaining a broad and not narrow perspective. Um, Just in our prayer closet saying, God, let me be slow to strap on my sword. You know, show me all that I need to see to proceed the right way. Um, And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then everything else is going to follow. So, um, those are the three things I think we can rem- re- uh, remember in our prayer closet. And there was one detail that I want to point out before we kind of leave this story, or if you had a question about the story later, but that is the servant who informs Abigail of the storm that that's brewing, you know, in the Hebrew, he, he literally says, now know and see what you will do. Those two verbs, know and see. And that's what Abigail does. She makes David feel known and seen. And thus she averts the catastrophe for everyone. And my, you know, word of advice from this story would be, or say, you know, the word of advice coming from this story would be, when God sends you someone in your life who says, know and see what you will do, for heaven's sake, pay attention. You know, you may not like that person. You might find them annoying. You might think they're an unlikely mouthpiece, but consider God may be using them to help you course correct in a very pivotal time. He may be trying to wake you up to something that you, you know, desperately need to see. Um, and, and a word of encourage, encouragement for those of you who are already caught in the middle of the storm, you know, let me be Abigail and say this to you, that God wants to intervene in your situation You know, he wants to load up those donkeys of, you know, wonderful things and hurry and bring them to you and say the right words to you. Um, You are not indistinct to him, but you are a chosen son or daughter for whom he has important plans. And, you know, humble yourself under his hand and give him permission to lead you out of trouble and know that he is always, always speaking to you. Just ask to hear his voice. And, you know, it just leads me to this wonderful promise that we have in Jeremiah 29, 10, or sorry, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come to pray and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's a that's a feast of a promise. Oh, is it right ever? There. Yeah. All right, this is convicting for sure, and it's also so relevant to, I think, what a lot of people are are feeling right now, going through, experiencing. They're in, maybe in the midst of a mess, and they're wondering where God's presence is amidst the mess. And I love the reference you made, Rebecca, uh, to Jesus um, in John, was it chapter 5? Yes, 519. Would you uh, read that again, please? Um, the son, let's see. I think it was the son can only do what he sees the father doing. 
And just talk about that just a little bit more, that verse. Well, that's interesting because we always, you know, we remember Jesus's great compassion always resulted in, uh, you know, miracles, whether it was a miracle of hearing illuminated speech that suddenly made the kingdom of God come down and come alive, or whether it was speech that like um, healed people and drove out demons. Um, We always kind of see Jesus as the originating point because he had taken on flesh and he was moving amongst the people. But as we understand it um, from the scriptures and from what Jesus himself said, he was not setting the itinerary for himself every day. He was waking up early in the morning or staying up late at night and consulting with his father. Mm. And um, he was only doing what his father was setting the agenda for. And that is, we're talking about humility. That is like an amazing form of humility to say, I have the power to do this, but I'm going to defer to you. And in fact, you know, when, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas comes with all those people to arrest him, And Peter cuts off the guy's, one of the soldier's ears. And Jesus turns around and he says, don't you think I have the power and authority to call down legions of angels if I wanted to? But we're going to do it God's way, the Father's way, so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. So he's always deferring to his father, saying, I don't do anything, not even to defend myself, unless I see the father, unless I see the father doing it. Oh, Rebecca, that is so powerful. Rosie and I are just shaking our heads, thinking <laughs> this is um, so significant. Now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to do some cleanup on the story of Abigail with Dr. Rebecca Ree. You can learn about this uh, in First Samuel chapter 25. But, boy, we are taking away some uh, really important and powerful points from this. And we will remind you of them when we return, and we'll answer a couple of questions. Be right back with Dr. Rebecca Ree in just a minute. If you just joined us, we are talking to Dr. Rebecca Ree, talking about Abigail, and that is out of First Samuel chapter 25. And I don't know if, Rebecca, your ears were burning, but during the break, Rosie and I were saying, tell her what we were saying, Rosie. Oh my gosh, Rebecca, like, I don't, I didn't want this to be convicting. <laughs> Honestly, if I'm being really transparent, I didn't want this to land like a dagger in my heart, but um, thank you, because I... We all have aspirations to reflect God and to have an example like Abigail has given us through through your teaching um, shows me I was quick to, the Holy Spirit was quick to show me times where, you know, I, I wasn't Abigail. I might have been her husband. And so I just, um, I love when the Holy Spirit does that because we can get to confession and repentance and, you know, be washed clean. But boy, I want to be Abigail. And I said, and I said to her, Rebecca. I said to Rosie that it's, I don't know if you need a, a counselor as valuable as counselors are, and I love counselors. You just need the Word of God like this. And and then Rosie said, Yeah, but you need Rebecca to bring it to life the way she has. So it's true. That's what we were chatting about during the break. Now, 
this story, and I've never quite seen it this way, and everything that you have taught has been uh, so memorable. And I want to just go back, if we can, and touch on a couple of things. Sure. The whole idea of being known and seen, boy, if that's in your life, that is a game changer. Yes. Um, I think, again, um, the fact that when David was infuriated and when we're often uh, offended um, and are, you know, we just are, we're seeing red, you know, and I was talking, we get that tunnel vision. Um, we're not knowing or seeing anything. You know, we're not looking at a person as someone made in the image of God. And when we are on the receiving end of that, that's, that's the worst feeling. It's feeling like something, some kind of calamity is coming down on you because you are neither known, seen, or valued. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's the end of the equation, right? Being known and seen and hopefully valued. Um, it's amazing to us that God knows us and sees us and still values us. But I think that's one of the greatest gifts that we can give each other as speakers to one another, imitating godly speech, is because first we have to listen and really, really understand that person's position. Like, where are they coming from? What's the hurt? You know, if, if Nabal had just really listened to his, his own men, saying, you know, these guys guarded us and we really, you know, he might have answered differently. Um, but, and the fact that um, Abigail, I looked it up, I think in the story, it says like at least three or four times, they use the word hurry for her, hurry this, hurry that, hurry this, hurry that. She, the second she hears it, the second she understands and glimpses, the second she knows and sees David, she acts. That's the other point, because you can, you can know and see something and then, you know, stay in your pr- pr- uh, prayer closet till kingdom come. And that's not really going to do anybody any good. So um, knowing and seeing should really lead then to immediately acting um, in a way that's godly and, and comprehensive and prayerful um, in the situation. And that's where those counselors, those voice of counselor, our counsel are valuable to us so that we're not just being reckless in how we act. Mm-hmm. That that just jumped off into my heart, though, this idea of being known and seen and how significant that is, because when you are not known and seen, I think you are unstable, and I think you mm-hmm. are at risk of addictive behaviors, you're at risk of doing uh, things that are dangerous to your, your spiritual uh, soul and well-being, yeah. and yeah. I think this is when the enemy can really step up and say, hey, you notice that no one's noticed you in a while or doesn't understand yeah. you, or doesn't want to listen to you, and then you're in trouble. Or doesn't care. Or doesn't care, yeah. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And the other thing yep. that jumped off in in uh, this co- discussion was the God's presence in the middle of the mess. Now, I know we've already chatted about this a second time in this interview, but now we're going for number three, because I think there's people that just jumped in their car going, oh, wait a minute, now how... Do I see God's presence amidst my mess, of which I have a lot of right now? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I like to contemplate, um, it was interesting when I was um, getting my master's degree in divinity school, um, they had us write a prayer service around Good Friday as, as an assignment. And so I did that. And one of the things I really saw for this, <laughs> knew and saw for the first time was that Jesus was crucified in the middle that he was crucified in the middle between two thieves who, according to one thief, deserved what they were getting. 
mm-hmm. um, where, I mean, you can't get more like chaotic and messed up than that situation because for Jesus, this was a complete travesty of justice. Um, it was something that he, he, he did because that was what the father was doing, but he was crucified in the middle. And if we can trust Jesus to be in the middle all the way down to that deep, dark, the darkest of places, the most hellish of places, then we can trust him to be in the middle of whatever we've got going on. I have never connected those dots before. Those are interesting dots. It's interesting that's where they put him. Yeah, no kidding. And I love that Abigail approached David with great humility. I don't know if I see a lot of that in the world today. No, and it was funny because when I first, like, um, Rosie, you were saying you didn't want to be this to be a convicting message. When I first read her, she seemed very obsequious to me. I was like, wow, she's really kind of laying it on thick. What's going on here? Is it like, is she being, you know, is this, this makes me a little uncomfortable as a modern day woman. Like, what's going on here, you know? But then I realized she's up against David. Okay, think about David. David at this point is the one who has, been called to play his instrument and drive away the the evil spirits from King Saul. David is the one who's going to write Psalm 23 and many, many other Psalms. David is the one who laments the death of people, of his loved ones with like such elegant speech, how the mighty have fallen when, when Jonathan and King Saul die. David is like this amazing speaker after God's own heart himself. And so God has to send someone who just equally reverberates with that kind of intensity. Like there's just no break in her level of humility, her level of insight, her level of responsiveness to the situation. And I think that has something to do with God knowing and seeing David Mm -hmm. and whom whom he sends to David. And that's why we have to pay attention to whom God sends to us because he knows us as well, too. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca, when uh, Abigail says, uh, let the uh, guilt be upon me, can yes. you uh, remind us again of the significance of that? Um, I think it's interesting because, of course, it's obvious to everyone whom the guilt is really upon, right? So, Because uh, Naval has outright insulted David and insulted his family by saying, who is this son of Jesse, right? So he sent the men home, not only with nothing to eat, but with an insult to the family. Um, and when, when she responds by saying, let this guilt be on me, it's interesting because David at that point has promised to kill all the males in the house. Well, she's not a male to begin with. So, you know, the, the punishment wouldn't have fallen on her to begin with in the sense of a direct hit. I mean, she would have taken, you know, the, the uh, she would have been a casualty in this sense, but not a direct hit. So the fact that she says those words means that she is actively assuming the guilt and the responsibility for something that's not her responsibility, strictly speaking. And as Christians, as I understand it, I mean, New Testament theology is not my area, but what it, it teaches us is when there's a situation where there's a victim and a perpetrator in Christianity, the Christian victims are the ones who are told, rise up and take responsibility and through the Holy Spirit, initiate reconciliation. Don't wait for the the other party to do it. Yeah, that's so true. 
Rebecca, we just have a minute left. Can you remind uh, people to keep a wide-angle view of whatever situation they're in? Yes, because we, the, one of the reasons we need to do that is the first thing that goes. Yeah. We just get that tunnel vision because we're so offended. And we need to actively um, ask God, okay, what is it that I may be missing? You know, we're just so ready to strap on that sword. We really are. And it's that soft answer that turns away wrath. And then we're going to be so glad later. And Abigail says that to David. You are going to be so glad later that you didn't do this. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, this has been a great, a great hour. I, I, what a great conclusion to the Old Testament series until we resume in the fall. And I will look forward to chatting with you over the summer in our Sunburn series. I know you've got something in store for us, and I can't wait for you to join us next time. Well, it will be uh, most uh, um, interesting for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I look forward to that. Have a great rest of the night. That is our show for the day. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you have a wonderful evening and a nice restful one as you lay your head on the pillow. Just remember, God loves you, and I do too, and I look forward to our next time together. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.